Well, no doubt some topics in Scripture are more difficult than others to understand, at least if we're talking about our understanding being based upon human reasoning. That's because all of our faculties, including our ability to reason, are tainted by sin. And I can't think of a better example of that reality than when people try to reason through one particular biblical doctrine, the one we're looking at today, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. It's our passage that we're studying on Sunday morning, particularly 1 Thessalonians verse 4, that is prompting me to discuss this doctrine Today, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. Just to review a little bit our study of 1 Thessalonians so far, we have seen that Paul and his co-workers who ministered in the city of Thessalonica were grateful to the Lord for the believers in that city, grateful to God for those in Thessalonica who had responded to the gospel and come to saving faith in Christ. And last week, we introduced the fact that there are three features of the gratitude that Paul expresses here, and we studied two of them last time. Feature number one of the gratitude, number one, the regular occasion of gratitude. In verse two, we find that they express this gratitude in their regular times of prayer, in particular corporate prayer. Second, we noted in verse 3, the second feature, number 2, the spiritual motivation for gratitude that Paul expressed. They were grateful to the Lord for the elements of authentic Christian progress, spiritual growth that was evident, seen in those believers. And there are three elements in particular they had seen in these believers that they expressed thanks for. First of all, Paul thanked God for their active faith, and second, he thanked God for their tireless love, and third, he thanked God for their enduring hope. Then verse 4 brings us to the third feature of their gratitude, number three, the ultimate ground for gratitude. Now, we know that Gratitude is still the overall subject here in verse 4 because we find here the third of those three participles that I mentioned to you last time, that I called attention to last time. In verse 2, he says, making mention of you or mentioning. And then in verse 3, bearing in mind, or you could translate that remembering. And now the third one, knowing. These three terms string together as adverbs that all modify the verb found in the main clause of verse 2 where Paul says, we thank God. So now we have the third, and I would say the most profound, ground of gratitude. Verse 4 reads, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, there are three important thoughts brought together here about true believers. Notice that he says true believers are brethren, and that is how you pronounce that. It's not brethren. I grew up always hearing brethren. I hear it around here sometimes. There is no such word. 
brethren. I say it sometimes, forgive me. Brethren. And he says they are the ones beloved by God. But then he says they are the ones chosen by God. And Paul says that he and his co-workers had intuitive knowledge of all that, that all three of those aspects of identity, Christian identity, were evidenced in the Thessalonians. That's the term knowing. It means perceiving. They were able to perceive this, and it ended up being a source of their constant thanksgiving to the Lord in prayer. Now today, I am only going to address the third one, God's choice of those who were the believers in Thessalonica. Now this term choice is the translation of the Greek term that comes from a a word group in the New Testament, a word group that yields our English words election or elect. So this was the ultimate basis for Paul's gratitude to God, the fact of their election. Now, just so you'll know, we find Paul conveying the same thing in the second letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to the similarity. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. This is who true believers are. They are the ones chosen. They are the ones who are distinguished by divine grace. They are the elect. Now, this doctrine, the doctrine of election, introduces a subject that unfortunately is controversial to many. I don't know if you knew of that or not, how controversial this is. There are Christians who argue over this topic. There are countless churches that have split over this subject. There are countless churches where I could not even preach this sermon that I'm preaching today. To some, this topic is part of the Bible that they want to ignore or to skip over or that they find confusion, confusing or that's a source of fear or something they need to explain away. I've even heard myself it referred to as, quote, the damnable doctrine of election, unquote. This is all so tragic. It is so unnecessary because in reality, the doctrine of election is one of the most significant, it's one of the most magnificent, it's one of the most comforting and encouraging doctrines in the Word of God. So the rest of today's sermon is going to be dealing with this doctrine. I am pausing then our study in 1 Thessalonians, and we will pick back up with 1 Thessalonians 1 next time is the goal. The doctrine of election. This doctrine expresses the truth that underlying the human response to believing the gospel message, trusting in Christ is the sovereign grace of God who takes the initiative. God, the one who moves the human will so that it willingly surrenders to the divine call. 
I love Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It comments on this. In Acts 13, verse 48, some in that city where the preaching was taking place had come to Christ. But here's what Acts 13, verse 48 says. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones that were appointed to believe. So divine election or divine appointment precedes a person's salvation. In fact, our election took place in the very mind of God long before time began, way back before the dawn of human history and what we define as time. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. So the point is this, before creation, before time as we know it, God, totally uninfluenced by anything about us, totally uninfluenced about anything about man and mankind, predetermined some people that He would save. So, though this is controversial today, it was certainly not controversial for the original authors of Scripture. In fact, when the New Testament writers, the writers of the New Testament, conveyed the truth about divine election, it was something joyful because they understood something very important, that if God hadn't elected people to salvation, then no one would be saved ever at all. Now, the words election and predestination, another important word, predestination, ultimately they both refer to the same doctrine, yet they do each convey a slightly different nuance in what they bring to the discussion. The Greek term translated predestined means to decide beforehand. In other words, to predetermine. This is the term in the New Testament used of God decreeing something in eternity past. The prefix pre on predestined, pre emphasizes the point before time when he elected, decided. Destined, that part, refers to the end goal, the elective purpose. So to elect does mean to make a choice, but to predestine adds this thought. There was a goal in the choice, a goal, a destiny, a purpose. And in the New Testament, we find God's predetermined goal. I read to you a little bit of Ephesians 1 verse 4. I'll read that part again, but go on and read verse 5. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, his goal, his purpose in doing this was to have a group of holy adopted children. Here's another verse where predestined is found. Acts 4 verse 28 and it's used about the cross and the crucifixion. Some Christians are praying there, 
praising God. And in their prayer, they point out that when Herod and Pontius Pilate and some Gentiles and some Jews were all participating in the crucifixion of Christ, they were actually carrying out something on a grander scheme, Acts 4.28. They were doing whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. God in his own eternal mind determined what would happen in the crucifixion for a particular reason. So in brief then, election reflects God's choice of his people and predestination refers to their divinely ordained destiny. Now in the Old Testament, these ideas, the ideas of election and predestination, provide one of the basic themes of Old Testament theology. We see it explained over and over that as God pursued carrying out His eternal plan, He chose individuals, He chose families, He even chose a nation to be the recipients and the bearers of His promise of salvation. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 25 to 26, God chose to work through one segment of Noah's family line rather than choosing to work through the others. Genesis chapter 12 God's sovereign selection of Abraham to be the father of a nation is found there, Genesis 12, verse 3. And that choice of Abraham was not based upon anything good in Abraham, anything about Abraham himself. He was a pagan, worshiping pagan gods, but it was part of God's predetermined plan. And then the nation begins to take shape. It was in the form of a divinely created theocracy. And it's repeated in Scripture over and over that their existence depended upon the sovereign choice of God and not something about them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It tells the people, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were special, because there were more, you were more in number than the other peoples. In fact, you weren't. And then, even within the nation... God's selection carried out further evidences of his eternal choice. God chose a particular tribe out of 12 tribes. Psalm 78, verse 68, God chose the tribe of Judah. That was his eternal plan, the tribe through whom the Messiah would come. And this idea of God's divine election then continues in the New Testament. I've read some, but I'll give you some more verses. Jesus himself taught the doctrine of election. Matthew 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, in John's gospel, when we studied John's gospel, we especially saw this in John chapter 6. There's a whole strand of of teaching running through John chapter 6 that emphasizes election. Here's a couple of verses, John 6, 37. Christ says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who comes to Christ? The one that the Father gave him. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out, Jesus said. Verse 39 of John 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Later on in John chapter 6, all the way down to verse 65, he makes it very clear, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 
So no wonder he prayed this prayer in John 17, the the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, verse 9. He says, here's what I'm asking, why I'm asking. I'm asking on their behalf. Who's the there? John 17, 9. I'm asking on behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Other New Testament verses include these. Matthew 24, verse 31. This is a word of prophecy about the end times. We're studying the end times on Wednesday nights, the book of Revelation. Jesus prophesied some things. Matthew 24, verse 31, it says that God will send forth his angels at an appointed time and they will gather together his people. But what does it call his people there? They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Romans 8, verse 33, that great section where we're promised that the love of Christ that we have will never end. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. Before that, it says, who who can bring a charge against God's people? Satan can't in victory do that. He can't successfully do that. Here's Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's how his people are seen in Scripture. They are the elect. So, God in eternity past sovereignly chose all his people, believers, to salvation. He draws them to himself in time by the work of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. There is a pool of humanity in the history of mankind. And there's something that's the same about all of them. Every person who has ever been born or ever will be born is born completely lost, completely unable to save themselves, completely undeserving, though they need God's mercy, undeserving of God's mercy. Every person is born completely deserving something else, God's justice. But out of that pool, out of the world of lost sinners... God mercifully chose some who would become his children. Again, all are born deserving wrath and hell, but some were selected by God before time began to receive life and therefore in time to be rescued. Therefore, when men and women come to put their trust in Christ, they respond to the gospel and they trust in Christ, that decision is not at all merely a result of their own will. It takes place because of God's divine will. There is no other way to come to Him. Now, I read to you 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 in the second letter where he expresses thanks to God again. I'll read it again, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, on what basis did God make His eternal choices before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, from the beginning, on what basis did God make His choices? Ephesians 1 verse 11 is one way to answer it. Ephesians 1 11, He works all things after the counsel of His will. And why? Why does He do this? Romans 9 23, He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. Where did these come from, the vessels of mercy? 
which he prepared beforehand for glory. It's based upon his will. There'll be vessels of mercy. At times, the basis of God's election is said to be his grace, his divine grace. Romans 11 verse 5. Paul says there's a remnant. There's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 2 Timothy 1.9 says it very clearly again. 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus, listen to it again, from all eternity. So no matter how it's articulated in Scripture, the bottom line is clear. God's election is not based on human merits or virtue, but instead His decision and His initiative are rooted solely in His own sovereign will, His sovereign grace, His sovereign love. Here's another important passage. It's in Romans 8. And Paul writes these familiar words as words of encouragement. He's encouraging the potentially downhearted. And to do that, he makes the point that God is working out His perfect purposes in and through our afflictions. Even trials and difficulties and afflictions won't stop God's divine will. Listen to Romans 8, starting verse 28. We love this first part. God causes all things to work together for good. For whom? To those who love God. Who are they? To those who are called according to His purpose. And then He lays it out for you. Listen to these important words. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son... And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, this is a chain that will not, cannot be broken. If a person fits in any of those words, take the word justified. That's a word summarizing our salvation. We come to saving faith, and we are now justified in God's sight. That's a theological word referring to our conversion, our justification. Called is a word referring to our regeneration. God regenerates us, gives us new life, so we have a new heart. We can trust in Christ. But predestined and foreknew is connected in that chain. Glorified's in that chain. Glorified's what we're going to be in heaven. If you're in any one of those words, you're in all of them. They're all connected. Let's talk about that first one, though, for a moment, the term foreknew or foreknowledge. It is the translation of a Greek term that means basically to know before. When it's used of things or facts, it's just the idea of having information beforehand. But not when it's used of people. When it's used in people, it takes on this this Hebrew sense of understanding the word know. To know someone intimately. In the Old Testament, it could be said that a husband knew his wife. It was talking about their intimacy. So when it's used of people, it doesn't refer to God 
what some people say, God looking ahead in time, his foreknowledge is, he got out his divine DVD that he has and he ran it forward and he looked in time to see who would trust in him and said, oh, I'll I'll elect them. That's not what the word means. This word means, means to have an intimate knowledge and communion and love for someone rather than just knowledge of facts about them. And having that intimate relationship without regard to what the person does or does not do. So this obviously, foreknowledge does, connects to predestination. When we say that God had a plan, a purpose, that's what predestination means in electing people. God had a predetermined intimate relationship with those upon whom he would show his grace. Therefore, in this sense, foreknowledge really is an equivalent then to loving ahead of time, to set his affection on people ahead of time. And therefore, it ends up being an equivalent idea to election of someone regardless of their character or performance. Just think of the words, those sobering words in Matthew 7. You know, those words where it says... There's coming a day of judgment when people will tell, tell Christ, this is what I did for you. I even did religious things. How does Jesus respond in Matthew 7? I never knew you. It doesn't mean he had no facts about their existence. It means that there was no intimate relationship with them, no fellowship. He had not set his affection on them. But in contrast, God's intimate relationship with true believers began before they were ever born. Here's a real good illustration of it in Romans chapter 9, talking about Jacob and Esau. Romans 9, verses 11 and following. I'll read a few excerpts there. Paul's commenting on Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. Here we find some insight. It says there in Romans 9, though the twins were not yet born... And had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, jump ahead, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God's sovereign decision in his own eternal mind. It goes on to say, he says to Moses, God told Moses this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the conclusion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I can promise you that doctrine pervades Paul's letter to the Romans. But as you've already picked up, there's other terms, even other terms besides election and predestination and foreknowledge that depict God's total sovereignty and salvation. All kinds of verbs like this in Scripture. God wills, God draws, God chooses, God grants, God calls, God appoints, God purposes. He causes, He prepares, He delivers, He transfers out of one kingdom to another kingdom. He saves, He makes alive, He brings forth, and so on. Here's a fact. The Bible does teach the doctrine of election. 
The God, the Bible does teach that God is the sovereign initiator of our salvation. And because of that, though I've heard Christians say it, they're not allowed to say it. A Christian cannot say, I don't believe in election. You can't. You can say, I don't completely understand it. That's okay. But you must believe in it because it's in the Bible. Now, with that clear biblical fact presented, it might be helpful then for me to deal with the objections that people raise and the questions that are asked that naturally come up. But even before I do that, we first need to study a little bit of church history. Let's look at church history just for a moment. I want to explain some terms and concepts that are frequently used in discussions about election. Let's start with Pelagianism. If you're taking notes, spell it any way you want. Pelagianism. As I sometimes joke, just use your pahonics. Some of you got that. It relates to a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk in the 300s, late 300s, early 400s. He denied the idea of original sin. In other words, he denied the teaching that people are born already sinful. So Pelagianism, the system that comes from his teachings, Pelagianism is the belief that the human will that we're born with is capable of choosing good or evil and that therefore there really is no need for God's saving grace in someone's life. He even taught that the death of Christ on the cross really didn't have atoning value to it. Christ was just a good example to follow. Adam was a terrible example. Jesus is a good example. That's Pelagius. So in short, he taught that humanity has full responsibility for its own salvation. Now fast forward to the 1800s. I'm going to go back again in time. But fast forward to the 1800s, a very famous American evangelist came from that period. Many of you have heard the name Charles Finney. He reflected the same Pelagianism in his teaching. In fact, listen to the title of one of his sermons. He had a, ti- a sermon. My title is The Doctrine of Election. He had a sermon titled, Make for Yourself a New Heart. Create a clean heart in yourself. Well, back to Pelagius, he eventually died after he passed from the scene. His teaching was eventually declared a heresy. But there arose a modification of Pelagianism. In church history, we call it semi-Pelagianism. Now, there's different versions of it, but in general, here's semi-Pelagianism. It's tweaked Pelagianism. The view is not what Pelagius taught, that We're not affected by the fall. This view says, no, we're affected, we're damaged by Adam's sin. But still, God gives grace to everyone. God gives grace to all humanity and thus restores people by His grace where we can then make a free choice because they taught man has a free will. Do you know the teaching of a man having a free will didn't come from Scripture? It came from this semi-Pelagianism. And perhaps the most famous name 
in church history associated with this view was a man named Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius, a Dutch pastor in the late 1500s. His teachings are called, what? Arminianism. But they're really just semi-Pelagianism. Now, there's five main points that summarize the teachings of Arminius. We can call them the five points of Arminianism. First point was free will. The man has a free will. He he emphasized human ability. Man, though he's affected by the fall, when I say man, I mean men and women, Man, although affected by the fall, is still able to exercise faith in order to receive the gospel and therefore able to bring himself, herself, into the possession of salvation, free will. Second, he couldn't deny election, but he taught, number two, conditional election, conditional election. And by conditional election, he did hold the view and taught that This is exactly what God did. God looked ahead in time. God can do that. He looked ahead in time and saw those who would believe in Christ by their own free will and then backed up in time, so to speak, and elected them. The election was conditional on their future response. Third point, something about redemption, universal redemption or general atonement. There was atonement in the death of Christ, so that's different than Pelagius. There was atonement, it was a general atonement. And by that, I mean, he taught that Christ's death did not actually accomplish pardon for anybody. It only made pardon possible. The death of Christ leaves pardon hanging out there over people as a possibility. Number four something about the doctrine of regeneration, the work of the Spirit, he taught that the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is limited by human will. In other words, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. His sovereign purposes of regenerating somebody, a dead sinner, that sovereign purpose can ultimately be frustrated if a person refuses it. He therefore, the Holy Spirit can therefore only impart spiritual new life if the sinner is willing to have that new life imparted to them. I've heard altar calls presented that way. Come down to the front and be born again. Number five, summarize his teaching. He taught it's possible to fall from grace. Fall from grace. In other words, a saved person, since they, by their free will, they chose... By their free will, they can also deny and lose their salvation. Well, eventually, a national court was called, a national synod, we call it, in 1618. A synod of the church was called to examine the teaching of Jacob Arminius in light of the Bible. And their conclusion was that the synod, they could find no ground on which to reconcile the Arminian viewpoint with that of Scripture. You couldn't reconcile them. So to reaffirm what Scripture clearly teaches, five contrasting points were created. Now, one of the men of the Reformation, a French theologian named John Calvin, had taught all these biblical truths along the way. So these five contrasting points eventually became commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. And that's unfortunate. 
since the points were not actually systemized by John Calvin. In any case, these five contrasting biblical thoughts are sometimes set forth in the form of an acrostic, the word TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, with each letter standing for something that's contrasting to the rest of that teaching. T stands for total depravity. We are born totally depraved, or even you could call it total inability. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. No one seeks after God, Scripture says. You, in TULIP, speaks about election, but not conditional election, unconditional election. God's election was not based upon anything about the people. L refers to the atonement instead of an unlimited atonement that is general and just kind of hangs over people, limited atonement, just meaning that when Christ died, in particular, He actually did accomplish pardon for His people. I, irresistible calling, that when it's God's sovereign will to regenerate somebody, give them new life, this dead sinner, new life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it happens. It's not resisted. And lastly, P stands for perseverance of the saints, just contrasting the idea that you can lose your salvation. No, true, true believers, once they're regenerated, express faith in Christ, they do not deny their Christ. They stay saved all the way through eternity. Just another little point about history in the 1700s. You've heard of the man John Wesley. John Wesley is the founder of what we would call the Methodist movement. He embraced the error of Arminian theology and became one of its most prominent champions. Today, Methodism remains committed, by and large, to Arminian theology. Sadly, it's broader than Methodism, right? Arminianism has become one of the dominant theological systems in the United States. You and I run into Arminians every day. And the fallout of Arminianism is seen in evangelism along the way. I mean, typical American evangelism became an attempt to manipulate people to make the right decision. And along with that, the gospel was weakened in order to decrease offense to unbelievers, or to say it another way, to make it easier to believe, what's known as easy believism. And all of this along the way fed the use of the invitation, the altar call, with multiple verses of songs like Just As I Am being sung, to emotionally manipulate people to come to the altar. By the way, altar calls were started by Charles Finney as well in the 1800s. He formalized the use of altar calls. This is what he said about evangelism. The whole idea of evangelism, he said, is to manipulate people's minds to get a decision. You don't find altar calls taught in Scripture. It comes from Charles Finney. Well, the point is that this is all based upon a semi-Pelagian Arminian view that man is the ultimate decider. And it appeals to people. It's embraced by people. And I think for two reasons, really. One has to do with the teaching of total depravity. To embrace that false system, a person has a misunderstanding or even a denial of total depravity. We need to start there, really. 
that people are spiritually dead. That is why Scripture teaches a person must be born again. They must be spiritually resurrected, given new life so they can believe. And Scripture does teach in John 3, Christ makes it clear, it's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You can't manipulate it. You can only see the effects of it. It's not something accomplished in the natural realm or the human realm. Regeneration. I think there's another reason why Arminianism is is embraced so easily. It's a very old-fashioned reason called pride. People have a hard time believing that they just can't think on the same level as God. They, They have a hard time thinking that they can't make something fit their own system of logic. And let's be honest, what Scripture says about election doesn't fit human logic. And that's why constructs are created and explanations and illustrations and views have been created to somehow make it all fit our human logic. How prideful is that? And to make it worse, since people can't understand all that's in the mind of God and based upon their own system of logic, they conclude that if God really did do what He says He does in Scripture, if He really did elect some for salvation before time ever began, then logic says God is unfair. So what fits our prideful view of human logic? Free will. Free will. And the prideful view that we somehow contribute something to our salvation. This is a very important aspect of this whole discussion on election. The bottom line, that the concept of free will is not found in Scripture. So isn't that interesting? Free will is not found. Election is found. And yet many want to argue against what's found, election. Now, don't get me wrong. We do have a will. But biblically, we find that when it comes to spiritual things and embracing the gospel, our will is in bondage, enslaved to darkness and sin. That's our nature. We make choices according to our nature, and our nature is fallen. So in answer to that second reason, we have to park our pride and just admit that we are born completely depraved and fallen and dead and lost, and that we are totally at the mercy of the grace bestowed by election. Just remember the words of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. There's an understood command there. Quit trying to make my thoughts your thoughts. They're not. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55 verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't even try. Let's add something else into the mix for people in the United States. People here have such a difficult time with the concept of election. I think it's because we're historically democratic. We've never been under a monarchy. So American Christians, they think of salvation this way. They've turned salvation to a democratic election. I've even heard this taught. God voted for you. Satan has voted against you. You must cast the decisive vote. Come down to the front as the music plays. 
But once again, that's ignoring the doctrine of depravity. And even if this voting situation was actually true, we would always vote against surrendering to Christ. So with that review of history, we are now ready to look at the various questions and objections raised by people, and these are in no particular order, and I recognize right now exactly what I recognized in the first service, that that clock has a big problem. (laughs) It says I only have 12 minutes left. So I suggest we do away with daylight savings time right now, (laughs) and I got another hour and 12 minutes. I intended originally to go, go through all nine of these questions and objections, and I will not be able to do that. So this will spill over into next week, but I will quickly do two of them. Here's one question that's raised. Number one, is God unjust? Well, Romans 9.14 answers it. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. May it never be. It's impossible. And it goes on in Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who do you think you are? Oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? It's up to God. He has all rights in that. The point is we cannot define fairness with human definitions. We think of fairness the same way we think of it as a child's birthday party. You know, you've got 10 kids there for the little birthday party and you've got a cake. You have to cut it into 10 equal pieces or you have mass riot going on amongst the kids. To be fair. Listen, the issue is not even fairness. It's justice. And we don't want to ask for justice. To ask for justice from God is to beg Him for condemnation and judgment. Instead, we want undeserved mercy and grace. So there's one. Here's a second one. Well, predestination, belief in that, breeds pride and self-congratulation. Here's the short answer, not at all. Election, truly understand, promotes humility because it confirms that we contribute nothing to our salvation. It takes humility to agree with what John 1 verse 9 says. Here's what it says, John 1 9. We are born spiritually, not of the will of man, but of God. takes humility to say that's right. If you do not believe in the biblical doctrine of election, then you do not humbly understand what it means to be saved by sovereign grace. And if that's you, I would suggest that you sing the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, differently. Sing it this way. Amazing decision. How sweet the sound. I helped myself get saved. Here's the reality. If it were not for God's electing love, love, no one would ever choose to believe the gospel. Man left to himself will not seek God. We used to sing the little words of this song, the words of this little song. The words were penned by many 
a long time ago, many years, decades ago, Josiah Condor. Here's one verse from the song, and some of you will remember this. It's been a while. My Lord, I could not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. And today we conclude our service with the Lord's table. And that's appropriate because of what the angel told Joseph. There is a connection here. In Matthew 1.21, here's what the angel told Joseph about Mary being pregnant, and it connects with what we're observing at the Lord's table. We're remembering Christ's atonement, that it actually accomplished something. It accomplished pardon for His people. Here's what the angel told Joseph. Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And his people are the elect. It's the reason he came, the reason he lived a perfect life, the reason he died a substitutionary death. All of that was done in the place of his people. And we should thank God for it. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this humbling reminder that salvation is all of you as a sovereign, gracious, merciful God. And so we're glad to give you the glory for it. You, out of your mercy and grace, open people's eyes to believe the gospel or else we never would. So I pray that this will be meaning for us if we're your people here today, if we've come to trust in Christ alone for our salvation, then we can rejoice in what we're celebrating, that Christ accomplished our pardon at the cross. Father, I do pray for anyone who's here who can't say, I'm a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray that if they're sensing in their own heart their own sinfulness, and they're being convicted by your spirit about that, that you would give them faith to trust in the Lord to be forgiven. I pray this time of celebration and remembering will honor you most of all in our Savior's name. Amen.